And there are a lot of religions in the world. That's not new information. You didn't come tonight to hear that. You know there's a lot. And they make a lot of spiritual claims, a lot of worldviews and practices and customs. And yes, there's sometimes an illustration that's been used. It's an old illustration, an old parable that, that the God is, is like a, an elephant. And the God of heaven and earth like an elephant, that the religions of the world are like blind people and they don't know him. And so the blind people and all their different worldviews and claims, they come around this figure and they're, they're, they're sort of uh, touching different parts of the elephant and they're trying to describe what it is they're touching. And there's one blind man touching the elephant's side. He's like, I don't know what this is. Maybe a wall. It's kind of feeling around the skin. It's kind of flat on this side, but then it starts to curve. Not quite clear what we're looking at. And then another elephant or another man touches the elephant's big leg He's like, I don't know what this is. It's like a pillar. This thing is round. It's massive. I can put my arms around it. Or sort of. Another is touching the elephant's tail. What is this? Some sort of rope. Why is this moving back and forth? What does this belong to? Another might be in the front of the elephant touching tusks. What do I make of these things? Uh, so long and, and then pointed at the end. What about the ear of the elephant? Someone's touching the ear. It's like, I don't know what this is. And then the trunk of the elephant, you go all around the parts of this creature. And so they describe what they're feeling, and not all of the details match. They're like, well, I'm touching this, and this is what I'm getting. And another person says, that's not what I'm thinking. They say, you know, what I'm touching, here's what it looks like to me. And all these blind men don't know that they're touching an elephant. They're just trying to describe what this is. The idea of this old parable is that this is what like grasping for religious truth can be compared to. Everybody's spiritually blind. We're just kind of groping around in the dark. And we're trying to say, well, to me, you know, God is like this. Because, you know, as I'm kind of touching the, the outside of this, this is what it seems like. And another person says, oh, I'm just not so sure. And this old parable is sometimes used to argue that all, all religions you see are ultimately pointing at the same thing. And they're just correct angles and perspectives from those pursuing some kind of understanding of spiritual things. And what this would also involve is that you can't say your truth is any more important than anyone else's. Yours not touching the same part of the creature they are. So you can't say that your grasp of truth is any more important or accurate. You can't judge someone else's worldview. Everyone is just blindly trying to discern what we're all trying to describe. We're all just finding God together, you see. And I like what, I like what Kevin DeYoung said about this analogy. He said, the whole analogy breaks down if the elephant speaks. If the elephant speaks and says, this is what I am like, behold the living God, this is what I am like, my character, my plan, my ways. If the elephant speaks, then the analogy breaks down. And then it becomes a matter of attending to the divine revelation of the creator of all things who has made himself known. The Bible exists because the creator of all things has made himself known to creatures, to those not the creator, to us. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, the Israelites are being reminded about the important truths that God has revealed to them over against the darkness of the peoples to which they are going in the promised land. The promised land is 
The land of Canaan filled with idolatry and filled with people who are describing the tail of an elephant or a foot or whatever and not quite sure what to make of it. And some seem to be grasping at things that have nothing to do with the elephant at all and just living out their sin. And the Israelites are to go into this promised land with a clarity of the one who has revealed himself. The one that they know, they know because he speaks. He has made himself known and not left them in the dark. Deuteronomy chapter 4 is a threshold in the book. It doesn't quite read like the historical reminiscences of chapters 1 to 3. Some writers have called Deuteronomy 4 the heart theologically of the book. That this theological heart of Deuteronomy, at least with the important concepts, not because they're only spoken of here, but because at this point in the book we are unveiling something major that Moses wants for his people to meditate upon. And that is the uniqueness of God setting his love upon them to be a unique people with words from God to steward that they're not making this to where they add to these words or take away from these words. But if the, if the elephant speaks, if you will... Then, then they're to receive this revelation and believe it and walk according to it. These eight verses are the subject of our passage tonight. And in verses 1 to 2, we're going to see the command to receive God's word without changing it. Verses 1 and 2, the command to receive God's word without changing it. He says, and now, signaling a, a shift in the literary movement, and now, O Israel, Moses says, Listen. And over a hundred times in the book of Deuteronomy, the idea of hearing or listening is commanded. That should tell you how important that is to the listeners that they hear. But the idea of listening and hearing for the book of Deuteronomy is paired together with obedience. It's not just mere hearing. He says, listen to the statutes and rules I'm teaching you and do. There is a receiving of the word with the intent to obey. This is why James says, be not hearers only, be doers of the word. Why would James tell you that? Because that's how the people of God's posture toward his words has always been. The posture to receive or to hear with the intent to do. In other words, we have this idea from the Word of God that when God makes Himself known, it's not for our mere curiosity or interest to say, well, isn't that some fascinating information? Now on with my life. But rather that when God makes Himself known in the Word of God, where He says, this is what I'm like. This is what you're here for. This is what you should do in light of what I'm telling you. Then, then all of a sudden our lives... Our lives have a, a bearing and a weight to them that's grounded by divine revelation. And this tells us the Bible is not like any other book. The Bible's different. The Bible's not like any other book because while other books have stories, these stories are rooted in the historical revelation of the living God who has set apart a people through whom will come a Messiah and the Old Testament prepares His way. That the main point of the Old Testament is to proclaim a coming Messiah who will deliver the people who are sinners in this world from their sin, from their deserved judgment. And these laws or statutes or rules that these words um, are all trying to say synonymously, these commandments are, are to be taught to the people for their good. Moses is a mediator. He's not the source of their revelation. He is the conveyor of it. Even in the book of Exodus, they're learning the Ten Commandments from the thunderous voice of God at Mount Sinai. 
And after the 10th commandment, the people say, we cannot bear any more information. We need you to go up on that mountain if God has anything to say. And then you come back and you tell us. Moses is not the source of their revelation. The statutes and rules that Moses says, I am teaching you. Moses is teaching what he's been given, and that's our stewardship. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We are trying to say, what does the word of God say? We want to attend to that. If God has made himself known, then the word of God becomes the the object of our study and the object of our interest because it is in the word of God where God has made himself known. The Bible is the burning bush. In other words, when we open Genesis through Revelation, what we are doing is drawing near to a holy fire through which God speaks. And this means the Israelites are not receiving the words and statutes as, as, the, as if Moses is the source. They're receiving these rules and statutes that Moses is teaching in order to do them because Moses is not their highest authority. They come from God. These are rules and statutes Moses is teaching that they are to listen to and to do that you may live. You see, they formed a covenant with God at Mount Sinai where in about 1446 at Mount Sinai, they heard words from God read to them in the law, in the book of Exodus, and they committed to do the words of God. And that if they rejected the law of God, it would be upon uh, penalty of judgment upon their sinful, rebellious selves. And if they oriented their lives by the word, and even though they were sinful, if they sought to walk in a path where knowing God and walking wisely with God was their pursuit, you know what they would know? They would know the blessing and life of God in the land. He promised it, and he doesn't lie. They can trust him. So if God says, here are the words I'm teaching you through your mediator Moses, and this is so that you may live, you know what these commands have? The commands have their good in view. Just like the prohibition in the Garden of Eden said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That to follow God's commands really aims at the kind of life we were made for and the sort of perishing or death we should long to avoid. When God gives us his commands, his commands are always good because they direct our souls to what is highest and best, what is wise and true, what is beautiful and good for our created purpose. To reject the rules of God, to reject his commandments, is to essentially say, I know better and I will appeal to some other authority by which to order my life. The Israelites are to order their lives by what God has said. And that is such a basic Christianity 101 way of thinking, but but how important this is. They've been following Moses for 40 years, okay? It's not like they're new to this. They've been following Moses for decades, and as an Israelite people, people have been dying, people have been born, people are growing up. What do these generations need to do, generation by generation by generation, following the promises of God by faith? They need to believe that God will do what he says. They need to trust his word. So Moses says, listen and do with this result, that you may live. Don't you want to live? Don't you want to receive the kind of life God has made you for? That means the word of God is not insignificant to that goal, but rather integral to that goal. It's part of their, their mission to go in and conquest the land. In verse 1, to take possession of the land is what we mean by the conquest. And the book of Joshua talks about this event in narration and fulfillment. Taking possession that the land that the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, is giving you. 
they are to go and receive His Word, do with trust what God has commanded, knowing that He will give what He has promised. Now in verse 2, He says, you shall not add to the Word, and you shall not take away from the Word. You, you, it's right for a reader at this point to say, well... We do have a lot more than the book of Deuteronomy, though, don't we? We've got the book of Joshua and Judges and Ruth and on and on. So what do we mean here? He is talking about what God has made known. Don't take away from what God has made known. This doesn't mean God will not make more known. Even in the days of Moses, we recognize there is more known in the days of Moses than God had made known previously in terms of written revelation. When he says in verse 2, you shall not add and you shall not take away, it's a way of saying you're not an authority over the Word of God to pick and to choose. To say, well, you know what God has made known? He's made known some things that I just find, quite frankly, a little bit difficult. And I'm not sure I'm going to pay much attention to that. So in verse 2, you shall not add to the Word I command you, nor take away from it. It has to do with the fact that this is God's command through Moses, to the people. And if they're adding and if they're taking away at their preference, then this means they are not taking the authority of God seriously. They're taking themselves most seriously above all. Matt Chandler has said something that I've quoted from time to time. He said that if you will not submit yourself to the authority of God's Word and you're just picking and choosing from God's Word what to believe, it's not God you worship, but yourself. It's yourself, because you've become the standard, the authority, by which all things are measured in your life. For God to say through Moses, you're not to add to what I command, you're not to take away from what I command, it's with this goal in view. Look at the end of verse 2, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. The goal is their obedience. Their goal is their life in the land. The goal is their walking in the blessing and wisdom of God. Their goal is that they be that people set apart by God for those purposes. And so in verses 1 and 2, we're thinking here about, uh, with that heading that I gave to you earlier, the full one, the command to receive God's word without changing it. And you might remember the end of the book of Revelation, some similar words are given. Has your mind thought about Revelation 22 yet? I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city. You see, at the end of the book of Revelation, there's language that's once again saying to the reader, when God has made himself known, he's the authority, it is not us, and we're not picking and choosing, subtracting and adding, we're to receive God's word and say, well, you know what? If I'm a sinner in a fallen world, I would expect God to say things that are either difficult for me to understand, and maybe for a long time, difficult for me to follow, and to receive by faith, in many cases, what God has said in His Word, because I'm not God. If God happens to simply agree with all my preferences, and all my positions, and and, and, and in fact, uh, all the desires of my heart, it just happens to be that all of that would be what's pleasing to the God I worship, we might find ourselves with a God in our own image, and not the God of the Word. We find that the Word of God has a reckoning with our sinful selves. And then we're called to things like repentance that we were thinking about this morning. So Moses says, don't add to the Word I've commanded. Don't take away from it so that you may keep the commandments of the Lord. Their goal, their resolve, is to be a community ordered by the Word. That's not just an Old Covenant thing, is it? Because we see even in the words of Revelation. 
In Revelation 22, which is the capstone of the whole biblical canon, those words are not only true for Revelation, God has made himself known from Genesis to Revelation. And that means we are to be a people ordered by the word of God. That this is what we attend to. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel, as I said earlier. We come to say, what hath God made known? I know we don't always say half, but, you know, just for illustrative purposes. In verses 3 and 4, the reminder of God's judgment at Baal Peor. There was a location where there was a judgment of God that he's reminding them about in verses 3 and 4. The reminder of God's judgment. Because, you see, they had an experience in Numbers 25 where they ignored the commands of the Lord. God had said, here is my word. Here's what you're to keep and to do. Okay, so, so what would happen, Lord? Let's say, let's say what would happen if, uh, if we didn't? If you gave your command, you know, even the kind that says you shall not worship any other gods, have no other gods before me, don't make a graven image. What, what if we ignored that and we did not keep those commands? In verses 3 and 4, he says, Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. You see, what verses 3 and 4 are reminding them of is Numbers 25. This was after the whole Balaam episode. Balaam and the donkey that took him to that place to meet with King Balak of Moab. And after Balaam refused to curse the Israelites, no matter how much Balak pled with him, and no matter, how, no matter how much he was willing to pay Balaam, Balaam afterward, we're told later in the book of Numbers, looking back to this episode, Balaam uh, developed a strategy to seduce the Israelites through Midianite women in the Moabite territory. And the men of Israel did indeed fall into the snares of temptation. And Numbers 25 tells of a judgment of so many thousands of Israelites. It's the worst judgment upon the people of Israel that was recorded in the Torah. He says, your eyes have seen what God did. Don't you remember? Don't you remember you were witnesses? So when I say to you, don't take away from God's commands, don't add to God's commands. Instead, do what he's told you. You need to remember you have a memory, don't you? Collectively, you have a memory of what happens when you forsake the words of God and pursue what is not God. He destroyed those who followed the idols, who engaged in the idolatry and the sexual immorality of the land. When it tells you at the end of verse 3, those men who followed the Baal, it's follow in the way that following after idols marks apostates. These were Israelites who left the right worship of Yahweh. They committed apostasy. They forsook the commands of God and the right worship of God, and they went after something else. And to forsake God and to pursue folly and to live in rebellion is to sow that and with a reaping of the same. Meaning that if you sow idolatry, you will reap destruction of idolatry. If you sow rebellion, you will reap the consequences of what is down that path. So they followed after the Baal, meaning they ceased to follow after Yahweh. Not all of them did. Some said, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, no matter what you say to us, O king, we will not bow to the image. Like We, we are going to hold fast to worship the Lord. And in verse 4 here, he says, You who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. 
meaning it was the idol worshipers in Numbers 25 who were destroyed, and the Lord knows how to distinguish. So that no one was destroyed in Numbers 25 who were worshiping the Lord. He says here in verse 4, when you held fast to the Lord your God, you're all alive today. So you have the memory of God's judgment upon idolatry. And you know by experience the preserving grace for you who are holding to Yahweh. You who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. I think this memory that he's bringing up in verses 3 and 4 is meant to say to them, like in verses 1 and 2, I've given you these commands, these statutes and these rules, which include first and foremost right worship. And if you are going to forsake the commands of God, one of the expressions that rebellion will have is idolatry. So what happens if you don't keep the commands of the Lord? If you live in idolatry and God-dishonoring ways? Well, you remember, don't you? It's a recent memory in Numbers 25. But you who held fast to the Lord are all alive today. What does it mean to hold fast? Now we sing songs like, He will hold me fast. We rejoice in the preserving grace of God. But you who held fast to the Lord, this means that the response of the people of God, it's not insignificant here. They held fast to God by refusing to be ensnared within the, the sinful idolatry and immorality of the day that allured others. They said, the way that others go will not be the course I take. I know that that path leads to destruction. They're able to identify the path of foolishness. And they looked at the idol worship of the Baal and Peor and they said, that is stupid and ridiculous. We're not going to do that. We're going to be seduced into the worldliness of the age that's going to consume these people. We're not going to do that. Holding fast to God involves knowing when to say no. To say that will not be our course, though others may go that course. No turning back, no turning back for me. I've decided to follow Jesus. I'm alluding to the hymn there. (laughs) I know I got that backwards though with the words, of course, but you know, you get it. Holding fast to the Lord not only is a way of knowing when to say no, but also knowing the promises of God that are our delight like the Psalm 1 blessed man. He doesn't walk according to the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners and he doesn't sit in the seat of mockers. How does he know not to do that? Because of what his heart delights in. His heart delights in the law of God. And on his law he meditates day and night. In other words, what's he feeding his soul? God's words. What God has made known. The elephant speaks. In other words, the living God has said of himself, here's what I'm like. Here's what you're made for. Here's what right worship looks like. Here are the warnings down the path of foolishness. Here is life in my covenant. Holding fast to the Lord your God involves holding fast and trusting God's promises and words. We we should feel then the the natural exhortation that, that drips off of this. Let us be people holding fast to the Lord who have spiritual discernment to recognize what to turn from and the promises of God that we are nourishing our souls with as the people of God that we might know our living God as He's made Himself known and believing His Word accordingly. In verses 5 and 6, the importance of following God in the sight of others. Moses explains here the importance of following God in the sight of others. It's not just for their national good that they should hold to the word. Look carefully at the importance of following God in the sight of others. He says in verses 5 and 6, See, I've taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, 
that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. All right, so we are looking here in verses 5 and 6 at how when they're in the land, they're not the only ones in the land. It matters not just for their own soul's good, but the lives of others who need to abandon the idols in the darkness of the deeds in the land and who need to know the living God. If, if he says, I've taught you these statutes and rules in verse 5, we're reminded of verse 1 with those terms. The Lord my God commanded me, we're reminded that Moses is not the source, he's the mediator. That you should do them in the land. We're reminded that they hear these words in order to do. They're planning to receive that they might obey and walk accordingly. And that they're entering this land to take possession of it. Verse 5 doesn't have a lot of new information. But it sets up verse 6. Keep them and do them. Because that will be your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of everyone else around you. I think this is another way of, of saying... You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. What were the Israelites to go and be? They're to go into that promised land and be a light to the nations. They know God. They have his words. They know the futility of idolatry. They know the stupidity of turning from God in foolishness. They know the way of blessing in life. They know a covenant with God made with them at Sinai. They have the words of the living God. They will be your wisdom and understanding. In other words, for them to be what they need to be, not just individually, but collectively in the sight of others, to be light and salt to the world. You know what's key to their mission? The words of God. It's key to their mission. It reminds me of Jesus, who says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching them to obey Everything I've commanded you. Jesus is a true and greater Moses. And you know what he's given us as a mission in being light and salt in the world. An identity grounded in our new creation identity in Christ. We're in union with Christ by faith. We've been made new. We've been saved from the darkness and deadness of our sins. And now we are light. We've been delivered from the darkness into the light that we might be the light. Light and salt in the world with the words and the gospel of Christ. You see, these people, he says in verse 6, when they hear all these statutes. Now pause for a second. How are they going to hear about all these commands? How are they going to learn about what God has said? The Israelites are going to tell them. That's how. These Gentiles are going to hear because people who know God are going to say, it's through us. God has set apart as a people a blessing to flow to the nations, all the families of the earth and the family of Abraham that are looking ultimately toward the promised son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And when they hear what God has made, him, made known of himself, they're going to say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Now, the continuity of the people of God from the Old and the New Testaments works like this. The people of Israel who know the Lord are our ancestors by faith. I want you to know that already from the book of Exodus chapter 12, we're told that when Israel left the land of Egypt, a mixed multitude went out with them. That's a paraphrased way of saying Gentiles 
accompanied the Israelites and were in covenant Sinai with the living God. And they had the faith of Abraham and those who were ethnically Israel who rejected the laws of God. They perished under the judgment of God. Even in the Old Testament, not all Israel was Israel. Romans 9 tells you that. But the narratives in the Old Testament bear out that truth too. The people of God are those who are not just descended from Abraham ethnically. That, that's, that's beside the point. Paul says the people of the flesh in Romans 9 and in Galatians and in Ephesians, he makes this case in multiple places, those are, those are not the markers of how you identify who the people of God are. The people of God are those who hold to his words, his promises, and receive all the revelation that he has been uh, revealing of himself to that point. And in the days of Jesus, that includes the coming of the Messiah. So the great and wise nation or the understanding people in the Old Testament, we identify in the New Testament that to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The correspondence from Old to New Testament works as the people in covenant with Yahweh at Sinai and in the New Covenant age, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ sealed by the blood of His Son. We are marked as that wise and understanding people, light of the world, salt of the earth. So while it is a national thing with the constitution of Israel in the Old Testament, it is a global reality made of nations and peoples and tribes and tongues in the new, do you see? It is a global reality where Christ Jesus builds his church and we, we become the holy nation. And I don't want you to just imply it from Deuteronomy. You li listen to Peter. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, to the Gentile Jewish church in Christ, your chosen race, royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you weren't a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. He says the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the multinational nation, the many-tribed people, the royal priesthood. So we want to be those who in the new covenant of the Lord Jesus receive all that God has made known of himself and be a Bible-oriented people. We want to say God has spoken from Genesis to Revelation. This is not a book like any other book. Therefore, we want to know what it means. We want to think about it. We want to preach it and teach it. We want to read it and study it. We want to internalize it and memorize from it. We want the word of God to order our lives that we might be that wise and understanding people to be light to the world. In the last two verses, he says in verses 7 and 8, two questions. Verses 7 and 8 are about the distinction of God's nearness and His laws. The distinction of God's nearness and His laws. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is near to us? Whenever we call upon Him. Now that question is about the uniqueness or the distinction of God's nearness. And in verse 8, the distinction of God's laws. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Now how should we think about these two questions that end our passage tonight? The distinction of God's nearness is over against the mythical gods of the day which were aloof and remote and that Yahweh is not like them. They didn't have access to their gods. 
And they would hope that the prayers they cried out and the idol worshiping pla- the idol places they worshipped at and all the ceremonies they engaged in, they would hope that it would get somebody's attention in the pantheon of deities. So these nations around the Israelites, oh, they've got gods. They've got Baal and they've got Molech and the Philistines have Dagon. Oh, they've got gods in the land. There's no shortage of worshiping going on. But he says, our God is not like their gods. What nation is there among all these peoples you're going into that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is to us? In other words, you can't look at Yahweh among all the mythical gods of the ancient Near East without realizing one of these things is not like the others. You ever play that game? And here when you look at the living God of the Word... Compared to all of the other nations that they, that, uh, all the other nations that have their deities and places of worship, Moses says, What other place to which you are going, or other nation of which you may know, has a God like our God? The, the very existence of the Israelites is as a people brought from Egypt by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, where none of the Egyptian deities could do a thing about all the plagues God was pouring out. He demonstrated his supremacy and his exclusivity as the living and only God of heaven and earth. Which means that God draws near to us. And if, I just want you to marvel at this for a moment. If the Israelites who have the tabernacle in the midst of their camp and the words of Moses could say, even at that juncture, what God is there like our God who draws so near to us? How could we not say, with the progressive and redemptive direction of the Bible across the revelation of the canon, that through the coming of Christ in the incarnation and the fullness of his revelatory word from Genesis now to Revelation, that we have indeed the God near to us as his very words. If they're to listen to his statutes and rules if they're not to add and take away, and instead to celebrate in verse 7 that God is near, and then in verse 8, a reminding once again of His statutes and rules, I think we can conclude the following. Okay, I don't want to be overly dogmatic, but I do think we can connect that one of the ways God has shown Himself near is that they have His words. In other words, saying words a lot, I know. By virtue of the fact that we have the Bible, we can say that when we open it to study what God has made known of himself, we experience the nearness of the presence of God through his living word. It is the word of God. The Bible is a burning bush. This is the voice of the living God who draws near to us. In other words, we don't want to be people who say, well, I just sort of want to feel my way through religiously and spiritually in the culture of ours and not really attend to the Bible. And I want to be a spiritual person, a religious person. You know, here's who God is to me. Enough of that. That pursuit is nonsensical. There's no groundedness, no authority, no trustworthiness in any of that pursuit. God has spoken. And He has made Himself known. So we need to put aside nonsense around us in the culture and say, I want to be a person of the Bible. I want to be shaped by the text. I want to study the Old and New Testaments because there's a living God who has spoken in His Word and He draws near. And He's not like any other supposed God of the world. 
This is the living God. And he comes near to us. So in verse 8, the second question, what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I've set before you today? Oh, indeed, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Hittites and the uh, Jebusites and all the other ites, they had, all the ites and the Irians, they all had rules. There were statutes and there were commands. Their societies had law codes. You see this in Hammurabi's law code, one of the most famous law codes of the ancient areas. They weren't without some statutes and rules. Not all of it was grounded in sound morality, but they did care about certain things societally that they would put in law codes. Here's what Moses is saying. There is a transcending supreme status that the laws of God have over against what these other nations are trying to do with their spiritual blindness. So he says, what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous? There is a purity to and an altogether righteousness of the commands of God. You can't say that about the law codes throughout the ancient Near East, but you can say it about the words to the Israelites. That the laws of God, his words and commands, his statutes and rules, all these terms I think synonymous in essence, is a way of saying God's words to you are, are untainted. They are, they are pure. They are uncorrupted. You can trust the words of the living God as inspired and infallible that from the days of Moses to our day, when God's word says what it does in the book of Deuteronomy, they could trust it then and we can trust it now. It's to their benefit. And they're to be light and salt, caring about the words of the living God in this way. To show themselves as a holy people, holding to holy words revealed from a holy God. Jesus says in his ministry, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I think that's a kind of spiritual perception that in Deuteronomy 4 is the background for those kinds of words in the Gospels. Listen, O Israel, I'm teaching you words. Listen, are you listening? Do you hear? And so when you hear Jesus teaching with authority that amazed the scribes and the Pharisees and that the crowds had said, we've never heard a man speak like this before. The kinds of words Jesus is saying is the words of the incarnate Son of God with such gravity and importance that he could say to his disciples, I'm going away. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. Make disciples of the nations. And when you make disciples from them, I want you to baptize them and I want you to teach them everything I say. Now you might have expected a faithful rabbi of the day to say, all right, listen, in the future, in the generations to come, make sure you teach them all the words that God says through Moses in the Old Testament. Make sure, because we know how important the words of God are, make sure you teach them to obey all the words of the living God that we've got from Genesis to Malachi. And Jesus, showing, I think, a full awareness of who He is, says, you teach them everything I've commanded you. Because to teach the words of Christ is to teach the words of God. It is not diminish the words of God. Christ is the fulfillment of those prior words looking toward a Messiah. And now we as a new covenant people, we are a holy nation of nations. We are a people, a royal priesthood composed of tribes and tongues throughout the world. 
And we are those called to be the light and and salt for the earth because we have the words of Christ and not just from Genesis to Deuteronomy, but the fullness of revelation. So when Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, it's that same kind of plea, isn't it? Let's be those with ears ready to receive the words of God with the goal to respond. To live with an obedient heart. To submit ourselves as the church of Jesus Christ to His Word. Because the church of Jesus is the place and the people where the Word of God dwells. The Word of God to be treasured and stewarded. Or, as Jude says, that we would confess and contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That we are those receiving to be faithful stewards and confessors of the faith, that the word of God would be treasured, and in doing so, we would be a light for the nations. This is our calling. Let's pray.